Thank you. you. May be seated this morning. God is good? And all the time? That is awesome. Why don't you turn with me to Isaiah? We're going to look at that scripture again in a moment. Isaiah 44. And uh, we have been in now the third week of our series, Real God. And uh, so thank you for being here today. In case you don't know, and we have some guests here. My name is John, and I'm blessed to be the pastor here. We are in this week three of our series, Real God. And kind of the, the statement that has been really the overarching theme or maybe the guiding statement of this series has been a statement. And as I told you uh, the first week on Easter Sunday, we started this series that a lot of this information came from a book called Real God that Chip Ingram wrote. I would encourage you to get it and read it. But he also based a lot of his information uh, on uh, another book uh, called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that book, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer said this. This is kind of that driving statement that we've been looking at every week. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So think about that for a moment. What I, the image I have or how I view God to be, who I think God is, or what I uh, equate God to be is going to drive my actions, my thoughts, and my emotions, who I believe God to be. And growing up, in, uh, I really had a, a view of God that God was kind of this this cosmic cop. You ever heard of that? This cosmic cop that he had all these rules. He had the speed traps out. And, and everything I did um, just seemed to be the wrong thing. Anybody, can anybody identify with that? How many of you uh, would probably, maybe you wouldn't, but people that knew you when you were a kid would, would uh, say you were a rebel? May I raise your hand? Okay. Well, I'm not going to say any more about that. But God, we looked at last week, is good. And, and just because God is good doesn't mean everything in my life is good. Right? We, when I look around the room and I see some of the, we, we talked about this last week, when I see some of the things that, that you as individuals, you as families have suffered, it reminds me of the goodness of God as I've watched you uh, suffer and still worship the Lord. Because even though life can be difficult, we, we have to rest in the truth of God's Word that God is, is good all the time, whether we see it or not, whether we believe it even sometimes or not. And you know, last night, as um, we, we spent most of the week in Missouri. We left uh, here uh, after church last Sunday. We drove up to Missouri, and we got to watch our son graduate from college, and so that was you know, all these things in my life seem to be happening in the last year or two that would point to the fact that I'm old. Um, I haven't given into that yet, but it seems like all the things that happen, you know, like celebrating 25 years of marriage, your, your child turns 21, your youngest turns 18, one graduate, that's like signs of an old person, right? But last night as we, uh, we, we came in and, and I came up here for church for a couple hours last night and I was driving home about 7 o'clock last night, and uh, so we, we live in Burleson, and I'm, I'm headed south on Crowley Road. And I see this guy walking. Um, he, he's headed north, and he's on the east side of, of Crowley Road there. And he's not moving very well. Uh, he's got a cane. He looked to me like he looked young to me uh, to be on a cane, and, and he was moving very slowly. didn't look good. And I could even see as I was driving uh, that he had this huge scar across the side of his head. And something in me just said, 
uh, John, you gotta, you got to turn around and go see if that kid needs a ride. And uh, how many of you have ever had a moment like that where you just kind of like, no, God, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, and, and so I'll, I'll tell you the rest of the story here in a minute. But let's turn to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, we've already read these verses twice now, but I think they're really powerful when we think about the subject matter we're in today, the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. And this is what God says. And it was a similar time and period. There were multiple, the, the, the Israelites were surrounded by people who worshipped all kinds of gods, the God of the rain. Uh, you name it, there was a God for it. And when I say God, I would say little g God. And, and, and all these things were going on, and, and God then interjects. And in verse 6, he says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. If you've been around church much, you, you know, and, and, and it talks about other areas in Scripture about, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. When we think about the uncaused cause, right, the Creator, the one who spoke things into existence. Verse 7, who can proclaim as I do? In other words, you see what God is saying? I am God, and who else could say that? He's throwing out this argument. Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? God's asking this question, but he knows the answer, doesn't he? Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. There is no other God. I know not one. And and so God clearly states that he is God and no one else is. He makes the claim. This is a claim of Christianity that no other religions. You know, there's like 4,200 known religions. No other religions does their leader, does their God say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. No one else is like me. I am the God. Turn over a few pages in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse uh, 25. We read these uh, a few weeks ago. Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. And remember we talked about this Holy One is that He's separate. He's above all. He's different than. He is God, verse uh, 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by, ni- by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. No one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, God and who God is, the power of God, the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the magnitude of God is, is beyond our capacity to comprehend. God is just beyond our understanding. The the reality is if I could explain to you everything about God or if you in turn could explain to everything about God, then he would cease to be God. Are are you tracking with me? His ways are unsearchable. The comprehension, our capacity to comprehend how big, how great, how awesome, how good he is, is beyond our understanding. And that's what he says. So I picked this kid up yesterday. Well, I finally wrestled with God a few miles down the road, and I, I turn around, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm really hoping that this kid has turned off on a side street 
by the time I get there that I won't have to pick him up. And uh, don't give me judgy eyes. It's, you guys are thinking the same thing. So I, I come into, back into Crowley. I'm heading north now, and I, I top the hill, you know, and you, by where the insurance agent there is, and I'm coming down the hill, and I don't see him anywhere. I figured this is where I would see him. It's kind of open there. I can see a lot. And uh, I don't see him. I was like, yes. So I, you know, I, I obeyed God, kind of. Uh, it took me a few miles, but I obeyed God, and I didn't have to deal with this kid. All right, y'all still judging me, but it's all right. And then all of a sudden, I see this light, some reflecting light. It wasn't an angel. Don't get creepy on me. Uh, his cane was on the ground in the grass, and it had caught the sunlight. And then I realized he looks like he's passed out in the grass on Crowley Road. And now I'm like, oh, I should have turned around earlier is what I was thinking. And I pull over and said, hey, man, you need a ride. And he, he got up. It took him a while to get in the truck. He, he was uh, completely worn out, um, really tired, obviously had some physical ailments, couldn't hardly get his leg in, into the truck. And uh, I said, man, what are, you, what are you doing out here? He's like, well, I just needed some Wi-Fi. And so I, I walked to Walmart. Uh, and he lives right down here on uh, North Crowley Cleburne Road, right by the bus barns. And, and uh, I said, well, you know, McDonald's is a lot closer. They have free Wi-Fi. But that's another story. And, and so I said, what are, what are you doing, you know? And then he tells me a little bit, start talking a little bit, ask him how old he is. I said, well, what's, what's going on with you? And I'm, you know, because I'm trying to figure out what's, why he's got a cane, and there's obviously some, some what I would say, physical permanent damage. And he said, well, I shot myself in the head. And I said, on purpose? And he's like, yeah, I tried to kill, I've tried to kill myself three times. And then I, so I was, I'm looking down, and he's got, you know, scars all over his arm, or he's obviously uh, been a cutter. He says, yeah, I tried to slip my wrist once. I took a gun and shot myself in the chest once. Uh, and then this last time, I shot myself in the head with uh, a 22 rifle. And, and, and then as I, he says that, I kind of look, and you could see on his head where, uh, again, I, I saw the scar clear across the road. And I said, man, God must have a plan for your life if you're still living. He's like, well, I don't, I don't believe in God. And uh, so I said to him, well, it really doesn't matter if you believe in him or not. He's real. And, and I believe he sent me to pick you up today. And he's kind of like, well, whatever. I, I, the wrong guy picked me up is what he's thinking. <laughs> and uh, he's like, he's wishing I'd have kept driving too. And so then I, I drive him to his house and, and uh, I grab out of, out of my back pocket. I usually have uh, one of the invite cards, you know, from the church. And, and uh, so I grab it. And I'm like, hey, man, I hope you'll read this. And it's got the plan of salvation here. And he said, I don't believe in God. I don't. I don't want to read that. And I said, well, if you don't believe in God, it doesn't matter if you read it, so go ahead and take it. He's like, oh, okay. And uh, so he, he grabs the card, and, and then I tell him, go online and watch the messages. And, and uh, I say all that to say this. Whether you believe God is real or not doesn't prove whether he's real or not. Amen. It's not going to determine his power based on how much we think or don't think who he is. Like his sovereignty is not based on my understanding of his sovereignty. 
the fact that he's in control doesn't change if I don't think he's in control. Are you, are you tracking with me that God is God and nothing I can do or say will change it? God would say in Scripture, my will will not be thwarted. That's kind of an old word, right? But nothing is going to stand in the way of God's will. I'm not big enough to stop the plans of God, and you are not big enough to stop the plans of God. And God is God whether I choose to believe it or not. And we're going to look at some Scripture today that show, shows us that one day, that we just sang about it. One day, every, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? Lord. Everyone is going, to, is going to bow. And so here's what I want you to think about as we walk through this this morning is that if you haven't already made the decision to proclaim Jesus as Lord, then here's the truth. You're, one day you are going to do that. It's either going to be today willingly or it's going to be for God unwillingly. And can I just be completely truthful with you this morning? Trust me on this. It's going to be way better for you to make that decision here willingly, acknowledging that God is who he said he is and that you're going to confess that Jesus is Lord. It's way better to do that here while you're living than after you're not living. Okay? So when we think about the sovereignty of God, this is a big word. And, and uh, whether we completely understand it or completely grasp it or not, God is who he says he is. We live in a culture now of, like I said, there's like 4,200 religions that people have, have said there is. We live in, in a culture of, of tolerance. We live in a, a culture of people taking this part of this religion that they like and this part of this religion. And, well, that one's kind of judgy, so I don't want that part. And so the reality is, whether we believe it or not, God is God. And that's what he says. Is there any other God besides me? Is there any other rock we've just read? And, and what did God say? Who knows everything, right? God knows everything. And he says, I don't know one. It's kind of this nonchalant way for God to say, yeah, there is a God, and it's me, the God of the Bible. Now, whether we believe it or not, it's true. In your bulletin, I want, I want to encourage you to read through these scriptures this afternoon or sometime this week. But, but let's just read. We're going to just read what these verses, a summary of what these verses say. This defining the sovereignty of God. It says God is before all things. He created all things. He upholds all things. He's above all things. He knows all things. He can do all things. He accomplishes all things. He rules over all things. And he is in control of all things. And aren't you glad he is? Aren't you glad he is in control? So like the, the dictionary definition of sovereign is simply this. Above all, superior to all, the greatest, the supreme in rank, and the supreme in power. So in, in his book, The Problem of Pain, I would encourage you to read that book, The Problem of Pain. It's, it's really uh, deep. I'll, I will warn you on that. But The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. And, and here's just a few quotes from that talking about the sovereignty of God. It says, The sovereignty of God is that which separates the God of the Bible from all religions, truth claims, or philosophies. That God claims, I am God and I am control. I am the creator. I am above all things. All things consist because of me, and I control all things. That's what separates Christianity, the God of the Bible, from all other religions. He goes on to say, When we say God is sovereign, we declare that by virtue of his creatorship, over all life and reality and his all-knowing, all-powerful and benevolent rule that he is in fact the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings and in absolute control of time and eternity. And again, I would say, aren't you glad God's in control? 
The last part of this quote, nothing will come into my life today that he did not either allow or decree for my ultimate good. Again, this is a statement made for, for believers, and we'll talk about that in a little bit in, in Romans 8, 28 and Genesis chapter 50. But real quick, there's, three, there's four ways here that God reveals his sovereignty to us. And this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just maybe the top four. But number one is this, that he has revealed himself through his titles. We've already mentioned a lot of these titles, that he's sovereign Lord. He's most high. He's the Alpha and Omega, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Remember what he said to Moses. When they ask you who sent you, say, I am that I am has sent you. I am Jehovah. I am God. And so God identifies himself as sovereign, Lord, control, ruler, king, Alpha and Omega, the beginning. And he, he identifies himself through his titles that he is sovereign. The second one is he, had, he, he reveals his sovereignty through his promises. So Romans 8, 28, a lot of us know this scripture. It says, and we know all things work together for good to those who love God. So this is a promise to believers. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to what? His purpose. That God works things out for his purpose, for his glory. And as we looked at last week, that ultimately we have to trust that if it's in God's purpose, because God is good, that ultimately it's also for my good. Not meaning that everything is good, but that God will work things for my good. In Genesis, we, we see the fall of man. We see most of the, the doctrines that are kind of play out in Genesis. The fall of man, and then, and, and then but we see there's 25% of the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible here, about one man, Joseph. The story of Joseph takes up the last 13 chapters of the book of Genesis. And the story of Joseph reminds us of this quote we already read. That nothing as a believer is going to come into my life that's not decreed or allowed by God. And there's really two stories. We won't take time to tell all the story, but there's really two stories in the Old Testament that would kind of highlight those two aspects. The decree of God and the allowance of God. We kind of see in the story of Joseph that it looks to me like God has orchestrated the events for Joseph's life and, and we'll see at the end of the book of Genesis why he orchestrated all those events. We'll talk about that in a minute. But if you look at the story of Job, and, and Job had everything. Life was great. Remember, Satan came to the Lord and said the only reason that, that Job loves you and worships you is because you've given him everything. And because of your blessings, if you removed all the blessings, then Job's going to curse you. And so God allowed Satan to take a lot of things from Job. But who was in control of all that? It was God. Remember, because Satan did a lot of different things, took his family from him, and then he came back and, and Job was still worshiping God, and he told the Lord, well, if you let me touch his life, if you give, allow me to make him sick, then he'll curse you. And, and again, God allows for him for more testing. And so we see that idea of God allowing things in his life for his good, for God's glory. But the story of Joseph, right? Joseph was uh, the young boy, and he was the favorite kid, and and uh, how many of you think you're the favorite kid? Okay, you're probably not. But uh, how, many of you th how many of you think you're the favorite grandkid? Any favorite grandkids? Somebody asked me that yesterday. And uh, did you and your brother argue about who was the favorite? I was like, no, I always knew I wasn't the favorite. So it didn't really, <laughs> didn't really matter. Uh, 
But Joseph was a favorite, and his brothers hated him, so his brothers were going to kill him, and they decided, oh, let's not kill him. Let's at least get some money out. They sell him into slavery. You remember the story, and they go back, and their dad thinks that, 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 that Joseph has died, and so he gets sold into slavery. He goes to Potiphar's house, and he's like the commander in the army, and Joseph proves his value and is like second command of this household. And then his Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with Joseph. Joseph says no. So then she tells her, her husband that Joseph tried to rape her. He gets thrown into prison. All because he did what was right. Because he was obedient. And he finds himself sold into slavery. Then he works his way to the top, gets thrown in prison. And then as the story goes, a few years later, he finds himself back the number two of all the command of Egypt, and God has blessed him. And remember, his brothers come back because there's this famine. They come before Joseph. They don't realize it's Joseph. They finally find out it's Joseph, and, and everything's great. He forgives them. Life is good. They bring the dad back. The dad sees, oh, my son is alive and had this great reunion. Then the dad dies, and what do the brothers think? You remember towards the end of Genesis, they're like, Joseph, he was nice before when dad was alive. But now that dad is gone, I bet Joseph's going to have us killed. Because he probably would be just in doing that, right? After what they did to him. And they come to Joseph, and Joseph hears this. Joseph hears that they're, they're, they're questioning the integrity and the honor and the grace that Joseph has given them. That surely now that dad is gone, he's going to kill us. And here's what, what is known as, or what people would call, the, the 50-20 principle. Genesis chapter 50 Verse 20, Joseph said this to his brothers. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about as it is this day, to save many people alive. In other words, Joseph is saying, you could not stop God's plan for my life. That God planned for this to happen so that as it would go, there was the famine Joseph's family came, about 70 of them came into Egypt, and about four or 500 years later, the 70 are now 2 million, 3 million people. And so what Joseph is saying, this was all God's plan. God was in control. And so if God is going to promise that I can, in Romans 8 we read, that if I can work all things for good, can he work all things for good if he's not in control? He can't. So he makes these promises. And we've, we've already alluded to this. It won't take much time this morning, but Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a big promise and only God can make that promise. Only God can fulfill that promise. So God reveals himself through his titles, through his promises. And then number three here, through prophecy. Through prophecy. And you know, the third of the Bible as it was written was prophetic. And if you, we could take a long time and go through all the prophecies that have been fulfilled. Even just in the life of Christ. Jesus fulfilled a lot of prophecies. Even in the last few days of his life, he fulfilled a lot of prophecies. And, and when we think about all the promises, all the prophecies that are in God's word, that have been fulfilled, or that will be fulfilled, 
it reveals to us that someone in control had to author all of this. Someone in control had to have a plan. When you just think of, there's a few chapters in Daniel, the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 through 12, God came to Daniel and revealed to him that the, the Babylonian empire, which was at power at that time, was going to fall to the Medo-Persians. And then he revealed to, to Daniel that, that the Greeks were going to take over the Medo-Persians. Then he revealed that the Romans were going to overtake the Greeks. This is hundreds of years before it actually played out. In fact, most liberal scholars try to set a new date of when Daniel was written because Daniel was so exact in who would, hap- or who would be in control, what would happen, that it's a, a very proof text that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that the prophecies that would be spoken of 100 years before it happened would actually happen. And again, I would say, aren't you glad God's in control? I will say this, I'm glad you're not in control, right? And you're glad I'm not in control. So prophecy, number four, God reveals himself not only through titles, promises, and prophecy, but he revealed himself and he revealed his sovereignty through Christ. Galatians 4, chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so this, this, this picture here of born out of the fullness of time, you get this idea, especially when it's talking about in this, that, that Jesus was born, this idea of um, an expectant mother. That it's the, the signs are obvious, right, for an expectant mother that the fullness of time has come, right? You know, are you tracking with me? Uh, and when, when they were talking about Mary and, and Joseph and baby Jesus, remember how I said when she was great with child, right? Do you, are you guys tracking with me? When she was great with child? So this picture of in the fullness of time. Why did Jesus, why was he born when he was born? Why was he born where he was born? A lot of it was because he was fulfilling prophecy. But also when you think about the, the time and period of history of when he was born, at that time the Romans had pretty much taken over the world, the known world. There was a common language for the first time in a long time that, that, that was this trade language, that Koinia Greek, which would be a great time for a great message to show up, wouldn't it? Also, it was very dangerous at that time, previous to Rome's rule, to, to travel because there was one, not, no roads, but what are the Romans, you know the statement, right? All roads lead to Rome because they developed this intricate system of travel. Not only that, did they, on the, these roads, Romans would be guarding the roads. Not only that, when you think about history, there was a great, what is known as the great dispersa of the Jews because of persecution. And they had gone all over the world and set up synagogues. And so when Jesus came at the appointed time, in the fullness of time, at the time God or, had ordained, the message of the gospel of Jesus went everywhere. Do you think it was just by chance by happenstance, by accident, by just, oh, oh, we got lucky Jesus happened to be born when, when everything lined up for the gospel to be able to go all over the world. No, it's because God was in control. It was in the fullness of time. In Revelation chapter 19, you see, Jesus came as a suffering servant, but 
One day he will return as a righteous judge. Revelations 19, 11 says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. He was clothed, verse 13, with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Verse 16, And he, was on, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, Jesus came in the fullness of time, born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, hung on a cross to pay for my sins, to pay for your sins. And one day, Jesus is going to come back, not as a suffering servant, but as a righteous judge. And so as I said earlier, One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And can I say right now, this is the best time for you to do that. This is the best time for you to surrender your life and say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins so that I can have eternal life, so that I could have a relationship with God in heaven. Now, when we think about this idea, this word, this truth of Scripture we've kind of walked through this morning, the sovereignty of God, there's always two questions that come up. And and we're going to try to answer those quickly this morning. But there's always two questions that come up when we talk about the fact that God is in control. They're they're not on your outlines. You might want to write them down. But here's the questions. If God is sovereign, why why is there evil in the world? Or if God is sovereign, why does he allow evil to be in the world? You ever heard that question? You ever maybe thought that question? It seems to be a legitimate question. We talk about that God is in control, that God is... Sovereign. Nothing's going to stop the will of God. And here's the quick answer, and you can spend a lot of time unpacking this. But when, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them in innocence. He created them in perfection. The world was perfect. They were perfect. They were sinless. And he created them with the ability to choose right or wrong, to obey or not to obey. So this God, who is all-knowing, who is in control, created man with a free will, with the ability to choose. Did God have to do it that way? No. But is, here's a question. Is forced love really love? No. Could God have forced Adam and Eve to love him? Of course he could have. But is that real love? No, so he gave them a free will. And we know how that ended, right? They, they chose wrong. They chose to sin. They made a deliberate choice to sin. And because of their sin, there is evil in the world. So God did not create evil, but he created mankind with a choice. And we chose evil. So the question, why is God allow evil? Because he allows us to have a choice. And we continually choose to serve ourselves instead of choosing God. The next one, uh, question that always comes up is, if God is sovereign over all people and events in history, doesn't it kind of make a sham of any kind of responsibility? Like if God, if, if I can't change God's heart, I can't change God's mind, I can't change God's will, if God is ultimately in, in, in sovereign and in control, then do I really have any choice at all? Are, are you guys 
So here's what's interesting. I'm going to ask Dave to come up here. You guys have been, how many have been looking at this teeter-totter, right, this whole time? Real question as he makes his way up here. Who calls this a teeter-totter and who call? how many of you call this thing up here a teeter-totter? All right, how about who calls it a seesaw? All right, so we have Team Seesaw and Team Teeter-totter. And if you say that a bunch of times, you're probably going to get tongue twisted. But teeter-totter, raise your hand. Seesaw. Wow, it's like... I don't like see. I don't. I don't even know what I would call it. Once you ask the question, I'm like I don't know. I think I call it whatever I want to call it. But let me explain something for you real quick. So on this we have, and you may not be able to see it very well, but this this side here represents the sovereignty of God. That side over there represents the responsibility of man. And there's two extremes here, right? Two extremes in in what would probably be known as. How many of you want to know who weighs more, me or Dave? Yeah. Oh, let me empty my pocket. <laughs> All right, so we think about, I got it, we got to see. Oh, <laughs> it's a surprise. Now I feel, like, I feel like a little kid sitting here. All right, so there's, there's two extremes. Well, there's a lot of phones right here. Hey, how you doing? Uh, there's two extremes, okay? The sovereignty of God, and one extreme to that is what would be extreme Calvinism. Okay, so we're going to try to unpack 500 years since the Reformation of the free will of God and the sovereignty of man with an illustration of a seesaw. Okay, we got it, all right? So this has been a debate for like 500 years. The sovereignty of God, the free will of man. The extreme of sovereignty of God would be like this, right? I don't know if I can hold it. There we go. The sovereignty of God. <laughs> How many of you like me just to jump off this right now? See, me and, ben were, me and Ben were doing this yesterday, kind of practicing, and it was, never mind. Uh, I, I've always been the big kid, so I'm, this is fun. But anyways, I lost my train of thought. So 500 years. If, listen, if the extreme Calvinist view is, it's all God, and then man has no responsibility. In other words, we're puppets. God didn't create us to be puppets. God created us to have choice to have a, a free will and so the sovereignty of God and the free will of man here's how I always explain it to uh, when when I for me trying to understand this I believe the Bible teaches both and that they never really intersect so think of it in a way of, of a road and God's sovereignty is going in one direction and man's free will is going the other direction and guess where they're going to meet up I don't know. Just thought I would ask. No. When we get to heaven, we'll know. Uh, Dave was kind of pointing like this, that w- this, this, t- this subject and this, you know, again, there's been 500 years of, of debate over this, and, and a lot of times it's not healthy debate. And Dave kind of illustrated it this way, that, that studying the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, it's kind of like getting above the clouds and looking and seeing, and, but we're not supposed to live up there. Right? We're supposed to come down here and, and be normal people, right? When we think about the opposite of this, I want to go in the air too, right? Hey, you guys like my socks? Look at that. Uh, when we think about the opposite of it is what would be known as Arminianism. So you have John Calvin, who I don't think intended to be what everyone says it is now. And then you had Jacob Arminius, who kind of refuted Calvin and went to the extreme opposite end of that. So now no longer does God have any control 
Like, I'm, I'm, I have no control right now, and I'm kind of scared. Uh, I have no control, and, and everything is on his responsibility. If he doesn't do it, well, God's just here hoping Dave will tell, walk across the street and tell his neighbor about Jesus. Because God has no control over it. And that's not really what the Bible teaches either. And in Romans chapter 9, 10, and, verse, and, and chapter 11, 9, 10, 11, Paul talks more about these two things than in any other three chapters in the Bible. You ought to, you ought to take time to read if you really want to get a headache. But at the end of the chapter, in chapter number 11, verse number 33, Paul, in this debate or this argument, he's like, for the church, for our context, our healthiness of the church, this is not something to be debated. It's supposed to be something that we just understand. But look, this is how he, he it's on the screen here. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. Think about that statement. We've already read the statements, the verses that say God's, God's his sovereignty is beyond the capacity of my comprehension. And Paul says the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. Verse 34 then says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Like we're going to tell God, right? It's, it's a similar to what he asked in Isaiah 44. Is there any other rock besides me? No, there's not. Not that I know of. Verse number 35 then says, or who has first given to him and it should not be repaid to him. Verse 36 for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Aren't you glad God's in control? Let me, sh- let me show you another verse. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 11, would, would be more to uh, my side of this teeter-totter or seesaw, right? It says, In him we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you see the sovereignty of God in that verse? That God is in control, that he has predestined, that he uh, has made the decision according to the counsel of my will, right? What does it say? According to the counsel of his will. So verse 11, Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, if you want to read the whole chapter of Ephesians, most of the chapter would, would be teaching this side of the equation, the sovereignty of God. But look at verse number 12 and 13. Verse number 12 and 13, here I think... There's a lot of places in Scripture you can find both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man taught in the same place. Here, to me, is one of the most clear passages of Scripture. So in verse 11, what we already read says that, that we were predestined according to the counsel of His will. Like God's in control. He's got it. But verse 12 says that we who first, what's the word there? Trusted. So whose responsibility is it to trust? You, you, you see the free will of man, the choice now, the responsibility goes back from this side to this side. God's in control, verse 11, but verse 12 says that he who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13 also, twice will say this, in whom you also what? Responsibility of man. Have you not heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? In whom also having what? Believed. Responsibility of man, that you must believe. And then you see the sovereignty of God. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. You see how they work together? There's this healthy balance that I can't completely understand to you, but it seems very clear to me in Scripture. And, and, and Robbie Gallery would say it this way. In our culture, we obviously have a Western mindset. And our Western mindset makes us think that it has to be either or. Like it can't be this. 
One has to be right. One has to be in control, right? It's either, it's either God or it's me. It can't be both. I'm still a little nervous. That's, that's our Western mindset. The Eastern mindset in which the culture this would have been written, they look at things differently. It's not either or, it's both and. It's both and, that it can be both. And that's what, to me, clearly the scripture teaches. God is sovereign, God is in control, but I had to trust, and I had to believe. And what did Paul write in Romans 10, 13? Whoever calls on the Lord shall be what? Saved. And then he goes on to say, but how can they call on him if they not believe? And how can they believe him to whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? And how can someone tell them unless someone is sent? So 500 years we've just explained with this teeter-totter. And here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. It's, it's not really something to argue about. It's something to appreciate. That God, in his sovereignty, is in control. And he's allowed me to be a part of what he's doing so that I could invite someone to make a choice to place their faith in Jesus. Isn't God pretty awesome? That's what we want to walk away with. All right, we're going to have to get on, off this together. Ready? One, two, three. <laughs> All right, give David a hand. That's awesome. So, how are we going to respond to the sovereignty of God? Here on your outline, we've just got a few, few blanks and we're going to be done. How, was, how must I respond to the sovereignty of God? Number one, absolute surrender of all you are and all you have. If God is in control, and he's, he's revealed that through his titles, through his promises, through his prophecies, and through Christ. If he is in control, the response, the proper response is for us. The word here used was bow. What we've been talking about, that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall what? Bow. bow. Every tongue will confess. And I think there's two aspects to this. When I was 17 years old, I made a decision to bow. In other words, I made a decision to call on Jesus for my salvation. It was a decision I had to make. I grew up in church, and, and just because I grew up in church and my dad was a pastor didn't mean that God was Lord of my life. I had to bow my own heart, my own will, my own desires, and say, God, I can't get to heaven without you, and I place my faith in you. And some of you today, I, I would bet that some of you today need to make that same decision, that you're going to surrender your life and your heart and your will and your salvation to God. God, I, I trust in you. I believe you. The other aspect of that is that Scripture talks about that for us as believers, that, that surrender to God really is a daily decision. It says daily take up your cross and follow me. Daily deny yourself. And so what is it in our life currently, right now in your own life, that you have not surrendered to the Lordship of God? Is it your kids? Your work? Your relationships? Your money? What, what do you need to reevaluate uh, re in your life and say, God, you're in control, so I'm going to let you be. I, I surrender. The second one is to believe. And the application here, which the two verses we read this morning, application, absolutely refuse to worry. 
absolutely refuse to worry. If God is in control and God is good, if everything as a believer, God is going to work for my good, if everything in my life has either been decreed or allowed by God, is there any reason for me to worry? Now, I'm not saying this is easy. And for some of us, let me rephrase that, for some of you, worry comes really natural, doesn't it? So you have to answer every day. Is God in control? Is God good? Yes. Yes. Then I'm going to believe, and I'm going to stop worrying. I'm going to trust. Number three is behold. Behold. The application here is to worship. Worship God for who he is, not merely for what he has done. This is similar to God is good, not because he does good things for me, but God is simply good. God is worthy of my worship. Is God worthy of your worship, yes or no? He is worthy of our worship. I'm going to ask Ben and then the, uh, the team to come up. And as they come up, we're going to end this morning by reading this, this passage of Scripture. All right? I want you to, to read it with me. Psalms chapter uh, 150. Psalms chapter 150. And after we get done reading, we're going to spend a moment in prayer. Then we're going to, we're going to finish the, so, the, the service today singing this song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Aren't you? I'm so thankful for the cross. And this morning, here's what I want you to understand this morning. That first one we talked about, that I'm going to bow. Some of you in here today need to make that decision. You need to make the decision that I'm going to surrender my life to the Lord, that I've never placed my faith in him for my salvation. Can I, can I urge you? Can I beg you? Can I plead with you this morning? In a moment when we stand, there's going to be a group of us, men and women. We're going to be standing here. We're going to be facing you. And if you'd like to know how to place your faith in Jesus, would you just walk up as we're singing in a moment and just say, I, I want to give my life to Christ. We would love to share with you how to do that. Maybe this morning you need to surrender some of your worry. Say, God, I believe you're in control. You got this. And in a moment when we stand, maybe you need to come to the altar this morning and just give it all back to God. Maybe you need to surrender your family, your job, your kids, your money back to him. It's just a time to do that. But it's also a time this morning to worship, that we serve a good, good God. Would you stand with me as we read these verses of Scripture? We're going to read Psalms chapter 150. So read it aloud with me this morning. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with the stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God, we thank You that You are good, and we thank You that You are in control. Lord, I pray as we close out this service this morning, if someone does not know You, if they've not placed their faith in You, that they would walk down here this morning, they would shake someone's hand and say, I need Jesus. Lord, as we close out this service in worship, 
Lord, we want to praise you. We want to thank you for Jesus. We want to praise you in song. We want to praise you, as it said, with, with, uh, with clashing symbols. God, we want to praise you with everything that we have. May our worship be worthy of you. We love you and we praise you. It's in the precious and powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Let's worship together as we sing this morning.